G'day, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast, where I am going to give it, get a bit fanboy today because I've got someone from one of my favorite TV shows uh, on board, Steve Baxter. Steve, how are you today? Yeah, good, thanks, Peter. How are you yourself? Mate, I'm really well. So if you don't know who Steve is, um, one of the original sharks off the award-winning TV show Shark Tank, serial entrepreneur, former chief Queensland entrepreneur, sophisticated tech investor, but most importantly for me, former Army apprentice and fellow member of the great Royal Australian Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, uh, or RAMI. Um, Steve, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Peter. I'm assuming you're infantry, were you? Looking at what's in the background there. So no, no, that's that is three RAR, uh, the um, the uh, plaque up there. But I was I had the pleasure of being the tech support platoon commander at three RAR. So I'm Ramy myself. No, uh, we've got no. Ramy hat badge on the slouch there. Of course, beautiful. Yes, I made definitely a, a, a fellow corpsman. Awesome. Um, Steve. You know, your public profile is all about, you know, the show and your investing. And can you can you go back and tell us about soldiering and what made you end up, I imagine, down in Aubrey Wodonga area as an army apprentice? Yeah, I um so I joined up as an apprentice in 1987, um, back when they could recruit, you know, 15 year olds. I was I was 15 um at the time. I was 15 years, 10 and a half months. So I was almost 16, but I play out the 15-year-old bit quite quite well. Um Joined as a, uh, a boffin, as we call them, an electronics technician. Um, did three years at uh, Bungilla Bar- Lasher Barracks in Bungilla. Um, uh, look, you know, I've from when I was a kid, I wanted to be a soldier. Um, I didn't. So the last year of high school, I did was year eleven before joining up. So I was actually quite a young. Um, I started school quite young. Obviously, my mum always had an issue. You know, uh, now I have kids, I understand why starting kids too early in school can be an issue. Um, so, you know, I had a pretty good first 10 years of school. And in the last year, year 11, I, you know, just, just became a rat bag kid, basically, and had a, had a shit year. And luckily, the Army told me, I, I applied to the Army, Navy, and Air Force, the Air Force, uh, as a uh, armaments fitter. You know, when I go through the manhandle, the bomb on the bottom of an aircraft, uh, I was told I didn't meet their education requirements. <laughs> um, and the Army took me as an electronic technician. So, yeah, how desperate were they? So, well, uh, there you go. I've got to admit, 15 is pretty young you know like i joined the army at 30 so i'd actually had a full career before i went to um went to college and i was like probably one of the five oldest dudes in the whole course like at 30 15 um we you're a queenslander um what was the what was it like just rocking up so you back then did you go do your kapuka first and then go into the school so we did. Uh, we we got uh, we listed in quite enlisted in Brisbane. I was from Rockhampton. We listed in Brisbane. I don't know. There was maybe I don't know, 30, 40, I can't remember to be honest. Uh, listed bus four was for sure. Um, and then um, we did about four uh, four weeks of initial training, um, called induction training. Um, and then over the next two years, through a series of yeah you know, a couple of weeks a year, and then um, so it was half a day every week. Your military training, so you did a certain module of whatever throwing grenades or pistols yep. or however it might be. Um, and so you completed that over two, we, we did we did three years, so, so the other trades did two years. So, uh, vehicle mechanics, um, fitters and turners, chippies, plumbers, oh, I can't remember what else is there now. Think about it, I've missed some obviously. Um, they did uh, elect mechs and other bits and pieces, they, they did yep. a two year, so all, all the all the training was completed in three years. So, third year was a bit of a bit of a boondoggle, to be honest. There wasn't much. 
you sort of just did different stuff. You'd already done all the you IET qualified for them a better term, I suppose. So I was just done over over two years. You know, I did um with jungle jungle um jungle it was called Jungle Warfare Center. Jungle Warfare LWC Land Warfare Center it was called at the time. Sorry. Uh, yep. Um so when I first joined up uh, for two weeks every September, the the the, the first years had to go to <laughs> just turn sixteen and hey, just go to Kanungra. Um, and then they changed that in second year, though. That's my phone. I can go away. Uh, they changed that to um, from now on, all second years will go to Kanunga for two weeks. We've got to do it twice. Yeah, lovely, lovely. So, down in, down in the creeks and the mountains, there's like uh, some seriously uh, uh, close country up there, up in the hills yeah, behind was, the Gold Coast. The, the, the first time we did it, it was it was pretty tough. And the second time they said, oh, we're going to change the program this time. It was identical program to the year before. So we just... And we had a bit more swaggering, a bit more cockiness to us, if you know what I mean. Um, and so we didn't really, and they, they took the, you know, as soon as I see a slacking off, all they don't see performing. And so we knew it was coming next. So we, you know, nothing could really phase us, to be honest. Much as they told us the program changed, it didn't. Um, and so we just didn't, you know, yeah, so they gave us a hard time. But, you know, once you've been in the army for over a year, you just, you, you just know when to roll with it, right? You don't take it too seriously. And, you know, okay, he's going to get it out of his system. Yeah, yeah, have, have your dummy speak, get done with it. <laughs> Let's move on. So, a couple of weeks, yeah, a couple of weeks out bush. You're always going to come back to a warm shower eventually. At, uh, and and the thing about doing places like Kananga and is you've got to earn your stories to tell your mates. Yeah, unless you're out there in the bush and sleeping in the dirt and clipping lantana, you don't have a good story to tell. You got to earn them. Yeah, you know, look, you know, and I, it was it was you know boys on adventure, right? a lot of fun. So you know, it's um, yeah, yeah. I think that that second trip was a lot more enjoyable than the first trip. That's for sure. So once you got out of the school, um, where did you go into the broader army, into the real yeah. army, as they call it? Yeah, got posted up to uh, one base workshop, Balimba, up here in Brisbane, on the Brisbane River, good yep. posting. But I spent most of the year away on course, to be honest. I spent, they went straight back down to Bandiana, Albury Wodonga, um, Ramey Training Centre for um, my um, TSG course, Technician Electronic Systems Ground course. Yep. Um, was that four months, I think, from memory? Um, and then I came back and they sent me over to... Um, I mean, the airport there, Meander, I want to say it's called, Meander. Yeah, just airport. right in behind Brisbane Airport there. Yeah, well, they've got the, yeah, the, the biggest distinctive feature there now is like there's about 500 Bushmasters parked up there. Basically. Still sitting there. Yeah, um, so it's just war stores, right? And they just say, hey, great, there's, in this in this shed here somewhere, there's like 6,000 compasses. Go and find them and test them. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't wasn't that, you know, wasn't that glamorous. So it was what you do in the army. Oh, yeah, compasses, binoculars. With a pocket full of uh, non-tech. Was it NTIs, non-tech stickers, or they? Oh, um, too long ago now. Look, uh, so I, I've got to admit, for me, Army was the best job I've ever had, and in particular, the cohort of mates that I've that I've went through my courses with. There's something like, even if I haven't seen any of these mates for now five, ten, twenty years since I, well, nearly twenty years since I went through went through the college. How was? How do you reflect on your experience, and do you have a similar thing with your? class of apprentices i know they always name apprentice class number x whatever it was we're the 42nd class obviously the best class ever to go through the schools <laughs> um um so bloody type band hey um you would have seen we, we get around with our tax stickers now they're 40 second crabs on a crabs and all the back and the whole thing if it see them on the show where my 40 second crab on the show i have my desk yeah. here i should take it home um so um uh, and it's about Ramey. So I've got a lot of mates who went to SIG. So I had the choice either going to Ramey or Signals Call. I, I went to Ramey. Um, it was actually good. It was actually the day the core postings sort of came out or the core uh, allocations came out. They put us in a room and basically said, hey, you got here's where everyone can go. 
we'll come back in half an hour. If you haven't done it yourself, we'll put you, we'll start putting you in postings. We, we all got it worked out by ourselves, which was pretty good. One bloke was in jail, so he got the shit posting at the time. So, <laughs> I like you. Yeah, he was. He actually got posted. It was, um, to, um, was it two sig Melbourne, one sig, oh, the, the signal, base signal arrangement Melbourne, wherever it was. Um, so, but it's been tight. So, like, uh, from, um, it was always pretty good. Um, and then, a couple of chaps arranged the 20th reunion, uh, obviously, you know, 2007. Uh, I had that in Albury, which was, which was great. And we've had one, we had a 25th, 30th. I organised a 35th last year up here in Gold Coast. The, the rule being he who organises it can put it in their own town. So, you know, be careful what you wish for type thing. So, um, um, but we had... It's being careful what you wish for, having all of those classmates back in the same spot at the same time and the risks that just comes with, or is it actually being the host with the most? Oh, look, it's, it, there's been some stories at the reunions, probably as many as there was at apprentices school, to be honest. Um, but we've got like, so we had a 35th delayed because of COVID by about, by about 10 months. But um, we had, um, so we still have blokes in, shocking. Um, uh, we've got, so we've got Dean Thompson, he's now Brigadier Dean Thompson in charge of all army rotary wing aviation. Uh, he was a, like a, a fitter and an armourer, basically got, you know, sick of, you know, sick of qualifying weapons. So they thought he'd become a bloody helicopter pilot. We've got Dean Rigney, Riggs. He was a vehicle mechanic. Did his nine years, got sick of turning a spanner. So I went and did selection. Now he's an SAS warrant officer. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a whole whole gamut in between, to be honest. There's probably, oh, of the 100 or so that graduated, there'd be probably 15 to 20 still in. It, it's, I, I reckon I reckon the blokes under must take their guts. You know, <laughs> it's like no one's getting promoted until these blokes move on. So, um but it's it's tight, you know. Everyone everyone gets like because it was you know when you're 15 and 16, you niggle each other. You know, a bunch of young boys put into a bloody school like that. You know, there's obviously there were. Uh, I I get along with a lot more of them now than I did when I was apprentice to school. Put it that way, I suppose. So, I guess my highlight about being um, being in Ramey was there was a certain kind of larrikinism or a certain mischievous, you know, with the soldiers. Hmm. You know, as a as a platoon commander, that was always a you know, um, you know a point of challenge, but particularly the the warrant officers that I had that really set me up for success in my career. Like they basically gave me all the answers, gave me all the solutions, made me look good in front of my boss. Um, those guys that had come through and learned how to nurture us junior officers. I just really can't you know Pete Skinner for one, who was uh, my ASM at three RER. Uh, I doubt he'll ever listen to this, but if you ever do Pete, thanks very much. But I remember one little story I've got from my troop. It's probably my favorite story. We had a game called um, flog ball. And I don't know whether this is actually legit nowadays or not, but it was in a tennis court and we played soccer and it was obviously rankless. Um, and everybody had one rolled up newspaper and we played soccer with the newspaper, but you weren't allowed to hit anyone in the head or anyone in the privates. But apart from that, there were just no rules. Um, yeah, so it was a br- it was a brilliant game of soccer in the tennis court. Um, but the pack had a great way of what you couldn't bully anyone because the pack had a great way of actually if someone was getting wailed on a bit, then the pack would sense that and give them a good wailing back. So yeah, I, know, I mean, so. It's, it's pretty, the units were pretty. I mean, I I didn't really I was never really posted. So I was posted out of predator school. Went to one base out of there. I went for one seat regiment workshops. Out of there, I did. I then ended up doing a um, rapier RBS seventy course. Went down to um, uh, one base. Excuse me, Adelaide Log Battalion. It was called. They just changed names from was was fire base. Then it was turned to Adelaide Log Battalion. I want to say, and then end up going up the hill to Six Day Air Defence, and that's where mm-hmm. I got discharged out of there. Um, and each and you know the gunner units. God, 
gunnies. But anyway, um, gunny units are something different. But we were you know, we were sort of locked in a big high secure top secret compound basically. Yeah. So we had like at least ten minutes notice someone was coming in to make trouble because they had to sign in, and we got phone calls to wake <laughs> up and, and everything else. Right when you were sort of sleeping in the back of a truck somewhere. Get out so, of the breezeway and get, get some grease on your face. Make sure you look like you're doing something. Doing something real. Um, look busy. So, yeah, they were all pretty tight, to be honest. Um, but it's every military unit, like it's um, like the apprentices, like we get like, our wives, a lot of our wives are friends or, and partners are friends. And um, they're just amazed. Like we'll, we'll sit there and we'll just give each other shit. Uh, they, so they, they, they come back later and say, Do you really like that person? Because I felt like a fight was, nah, we were best of mates. You know, we we're just giving each other a good bit of lip and. But then someone will come in from like the forty third class, and then since it's on, but then if, if a grunt walks in, then it's like no, nah, I don't like grunts either. Right? So the, the 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 way you can divide military units by experience and units and subunits and corps and God knows what else, trade, just you know, all the rest, right? We'll find any way just to have a crack at someone. Um, it's all, but it's always us versus them. And I've, but I'm never going to get nasty either, right? It's just everyone knows, everyone gets, you know, you, yeah, never going to get nasty, even on like anything that was around, everyone's full of juice, so it's pretty calm. Always us first, then the time. My platoon versus your platoon, my company, your company, even. But then, you know, my battalion versus your battalion. There's always a way to find someone, you know, and look look at someone on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, coming now to you mentioned Adelaide Hills. Um, that I know you transitioned out from just doing some notes before into Adelaide and started your first business. I'm always interested in this bit where do military skills directly apply to entrepreneurship, or are we doing something totally different? So for me, one of the greatest stories of um, veteran entrepreneurs are the couple of lads who fought together at Lone Pine, who went to France, got on a cutting edge military course to go and learn how to fly. And these two dudes, Hudson Fish and Paul McGuinness, when they got back to Australia, they thought, hey, let's move out to Winton, buy a plane and fly it west. And those two lads took their military skills, started a business, and now the icon that is Qantas you know, is the result. Yeah, didn't know that. Um, I knew the last part, didn't know the first part. There you go. Yeah, so two lads, you know, they were literally infantrymen privates at the time. And when they got to France, it's like, man, who wants to get on this course? And as you know, not many people volunteer to do a course in the military. Like, hands up, who wants to get on the course? But like, they're like, okay, let's get the fuck out of the trench, learn <laughs> how to fly. One guy became the pilot. The other guy was his navigator, got back to Australia and cracked on. Yeah, um, just in your experience, were you one of these people that took you know, your um, technical skills into your first business? So I was t- I was a uh, electronics technician and then I did like t- technician electronic systems ground, which is everything except radio, radar and avionics. So you know, everything from like compasses, binoculars through to, you know, tank fire control, RBS-70, rapier, but, but mostly optical stuff, you know, things mm-hmm. you clean a lot of glass, basically. So... Um, uh, we used to go and exercise quite a bit. And back in the days when we had these things called books for young people, they're, they're made from dead trees. <laughs> you know, we used to exercise them like, yeah, you drive there, spend seven or eight days driving there. You'd, you'd set up for a week here, two weeks there, whatever it might be. Um, and then mostly just waiting for people to, to break stuff and bring it in. Um, we had, like, especially at 16, we had a quite a large, um, with the eight-ton um, Mac trailers, with the, the, the big shelves, the big pommy shelters for, for radio. So, you know, people bought stuff to us. We didn't go to them for obvious reasons. Um, and um, it was boring. So, you know, I used to take books and it was easy to get through a book. Then I enrolled in a um, part-time computing degree, um, um, yeah, part-time fully external computing degree and and just started doing computers. So I, I sort of taught myself the software and the computer stuff. We, we did a little bit of 
microprocessor software, but very, very low down code, like literally no programming ones and zeros as opposed mm -hmm. to uh, programming languages. So um, so I, I taught myself most of that. So I, I would say that I took nothing technical from my military um, uh, time into my business. But what I did take was at times to, to my detriment is some of the attitude. Mm. So um, business, yeah, business doesn't have a problem with Jack. And that's a big problem when you get into business. And that, that actually can really like it, it, people, you know, close to you, even business partners, knifing in the back. It just, you know, something that would not occur in the military, right? Or it would fucking occur once and the person would stop it after that, right? So um, so I found that hard and hard to interpret. And I still find it just I don't I don't I don't get it when the doggy dog it just pisses me off. Um, um you know, I, I bought in my attitude to staff and discipline for some degree like that. don't be fucking late right and okay if i might i might pay for you to go get a skin full the night before it doesn't mean you turn up drunk and you can't do your job it's Back small it thing, almost like respect right and um so i'm a very and unfortunately nowadays especially with covid and we're from home that you just have to get used to people not turning up on time it's just crap so but for the most part you know i, I took a lot of those more softer skills and not not in a soft attitude but as opposed to hard tech skills more software skills around, okay, this is what you do. Um, but other things as well, like uh, big and Ramey on manuals, the EMIs and other bits and pieces, right? They, they were great. Then it fixed something. You just didn't have to. You pulled the book out and you read it, right? You know, it told you what to do and you had to get to apply your basic hand skills. So I've always been a huge fan of quality um, quality systems. So that's that's documentation. Um, going forward, just document stuff, understand how it's done. So, you know, so it took a lot more softer things and then I think harder technical things away from, from my military experience, to be honest. That point there about systems and processes. So like our business is called Trusted Process, particularly for that reason, because for me, uh, business is all about control. And there's two ways you get control. We need consistency plus visibility. If mm. I can see what's going on in my business and I can trust that my team is doing it my way, and consistency or, or process is really just the essence of how do we capture excellence and repeat until we learn, then we adjust, and then we repeat, repeat, repeat. So this essence of just consistency, trying to find that the one right way in the constant quest for improvement, I guess is, is my biggest takeaway like into our business. I just want to unpack a little bit about risk. How did you assess your own appetite from risk to leave a steady job and to go all in on running your first business. Oh, right. Well, I didn't. Well, I probably should have thought harder, to be honest. You know, um, look, we, we were a peacetime army. It was a boring soul army. I mean, to be quite honest, yeah. you know, we most like, you know, I wasn't joking before about, you know, getting getting noticed to be woken up because people would bring stuff in and it was broken. We couldn't get repair parts. We couldn't be you know, it, it, it was a really boring army. There was no sense of urgency through the entire system. I mean, we had people were motivated to a point, but, you know, when you go up every day and you're just, they're just finding busy work for you. And that's, Sold us to be honest. Yeah. Right. So, um, so I left in '95. So um, it was a pre-team war. Um, it, it, you guys, you know, people did do war and warlike service, Rwanda, and you know, uh, the, the peacekeeping missions and whatnot. So I'm on untack and other bits and pieces. So I'm not not dissing that, but they were few and far between. So, um, uh, and and so the question about motivation was. Sorry, Pete, I forgot the question. Is that motivation? Yeah. Was, I was interested in your your appetite to leave a stable job and to just risk getting out there and giving it a crack because you didn't go to employment from the military. You went straight into your own business. I, start, right? 
it out. So I got out in September '95, and I started the business in November '94. And I'm in Marie Court installed 23 phone lines, and and sort of just went for. I forget asked how do you install 23? How do you have permission to install 23 phone lines on a married board? I didn't knew the answer, so I didn't fucking ask. <laughs> just went and did it right. Forgiveness so, rather than permission there. Oh yeah, I, the, the March inspection was pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, was I got there, sir. <laughs> that would have and people would have had no idea. Like, what's this guy got all these cables running in the house for? Like, literally would have been no fathom understanding what that was. Pretty funny. So um and and so uh so I started that um and uh I did because the, the, the reason I was experimenting, so I was doing this university study part-time. I had this a weird subject called Unix and they, they sent me this crap, like on two floppy disks, this, this version of Unix you could boot up, it was crap. So I researched through bulletin boards at the time, found out this thing called Linux, managed to download the 115 floppy disks required for that, managed to get that installed, which is, you know, this is like 0.99 or 0.92. It went from 0.04 to 0.99. It was almost release quality. It jumped. Yeah jumped quite markedly back then. And I managed to get it installed and working and then uh, plugged some dumb terminals for back and did a bit of networking. And I thought, dumb terminal, just a modem. You can obviously plug some more into this thing and, and start a business. And mm-hmm. that was it, literally. And I sat down and I did a bit of a business plan, I suppose, to a point. But, you know, it was more itemizing expenses, things I needed to buy and then what I needed to recover and then what I needed to recover for a wage. And thought, well, this seems pretty easy. Um, had a chat to my then fiance, now wife, and we'd saved 11 grand for a home loan deposit. And I said, Look, you know, and she, I think I was pretty much for booze one night, I want to say. It wasn't a big night, um, but I had, had, had one or two Eagle Blues in me, so I was, had a bit of courage going. And, um, and um, yeah, she, uh, and I said, I'll get this idea to, you know, take our home loan deposit and start this business, and, you know, we're, we're going to do this. And she said, Yeah, let's do it. I thought she'd say no, and that'd be the end of it, to be honest, and probably rightly so. Um, and she said, No, let's get into it. And then uh, crit- like, critical moments, just critical moments that can be life defining at any, you know, and they're just sitting there waiting for you just to have the courage to give it a crack. Well, the bigger one was when I went along to this computer user group meeting in Adelaide. I, I probably still take you to the house. It was, it was near the old Mitsubishi plant. I could drive there to this day because uh, that night was so seminal on my thinking. Was it, we just used to take computers along and help people install Linux. And this guy had a backyard shed, basically. And, um, and I saw for the first time someone actually configure up the windowing system for X Windows, and they they started using the Mosaic browser at the time, and the, the CGI common gateway interface, the, the way we interact with servers via web browser, had just come out as, as standard. And um, and I just knew like what they were doing was just unbelievable, and you could just see how the world was going to change. And I mean, and the ten things I thought would happen all happened, and a hundred, two hundred other things happened as well, if you know what I mean. So. Uh, and I, I sensed there was this window that was open that was going to close. Unless I'd let through it, there was going to be trouble. Well, I, I'm in trouble. I'd miss an opportunity. So um, that was sort of a bigger moment for me. It was just so crystal clear that, damn, these computers, they, they, we're, we're going to start transacting everything over this stuff. Um, you know, did I think we'd buy mattresses and shoes and dresses? No, but I, I thought I, I thought banks, travel, you know, things like books and CDs and other bits and pieces. Some things are really easy to see. Um, communications, obviously. But, you know, I, I think nobody predicted it to go as far as it has. How did you get out of that first? How did you get out of that first message? When did the opportunity arrive to sort of think, you know, look, it's done its course. It's time for me to get out and try something new. Yeah. So we, we, we moved out of the mat where we, we had the Maricorder. We bought the house next door, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> and then moved all the stuff into that because it was closer to the exchange. And I could literally pull the cable out of the ground and take it closer. Um, and then we ended up, Moving the business down into Adelaide City, into Grove Street, and in, in, in the in, in the city itself, 
um, grew quite well, grew to um, we about 35,000 customers at the end, um, 60 something staff. Um, we had one incident where Telstra, so, so our main competitor was Telstra, our main supplier was Telstra, and, and that uh, telecoms industry is terrible. It, we've done the same thing with MBM, we've done exactly the same thing with MBM, whether it's stupidest nation alive. But um, they, they installed some equipment on our premises to help us, and it, it literally destroyed our service for about, oh, oh golly, for about seven or eight weeks. We were going from maybe netting, oh golly, 30, 30 new accounts a day to probably losing about 30 a week. Um, with because, 60 mouths to feed with no revenue while people have cut their service. Yeah, because they, you know, because when you're back from the days of modems, you used to have like, when you used to connect, you used to connect up and you used to look at the connection speed. If you had a 336 yeah. modem and you only connected at 26400, you'd actually redial into it again because that, that speed mattered, right? There's only 30 cents, who would have cared? So, um, and the equipment they put in was just bad, bad firmware, basically. It was a rim. We all know rims are nowadays. Um, and the people, you know, 33.6 modems were connecting up at like, you know, 18, like 18,000, 17,000 board. It was, it was terrible. So they went to shit. I, I ended up getting a confidential settlement for Telstra. I never kept that confidentiality because it needed to be talked about. Um, but it was just, and I thought to myself, that was a mistake. If, if they wanted to kill us, we are dead. Um, and they just were, were, were launching Big Pond at the time. And I thought, oh, no way. I've got to get out. Um, so we started the process of shopping it around. Um, went to the US to a trade show to meet a chap who, who sold businesses. His name was, he had a business called combroker.com, which is pretty cool. Um, but we ended up selling to an Australian business, Aussie Mail in the end, um, through a local connection. So but that was, you have to take cash off the table at some point and be risk the family. So out of the army, first business in, first business out. How do we move from there to what we've, you know, the suite of businesses, 1013, Beaton Zone and River City Labs today? What's the 15 well, years? From that, we sold that. We moved back from Adelaide to Brisbane. Um, we both, my wife was from Brisbane um, and I, I was from Queensland. Um, then um, met up with an old schoolmate. We started another business in 2001 called Pipe Networks. Um, went up listening at the ASX in 2004. Um, and... Um, 2005, sorry. Uh, I left there as a full-time executive in 2008 and went, went with Google in California for a year before we sold that business or, or um, somebody came along and acquired that business on market, kind of TPG Telecom. So we listed it for 40 cents and sold for six bucks 30. So it was sort of a pretty good day. Um, from that, I didn't really want to get back into business again. So I thought I'd just become an investor and then and, and, you know, help other people get, you know, help other overly excitable people get carried away and, and, and set their future and make some money along the way. Um, and so that, that's how I got into that. And, and I found more and more businesses that were, you know, that, that I wanted to uh, participate in and, and they wanted my capital, our capital, um, so families. Um, and, and then that one thing led to another. And I, I saw some deficiencies in the Queensland sort of startup ecosystem. So I started a not-for-profit called River City Labs to um, help address some of those issues. Um, along the way, then I got sort of tapped to be um, to go on the Shark Tank TV show, which was, which was a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, partway through that process, that the Queensland government asked me to be their chief, so the second chief entrepreneur. I, they wanted me to be the first one, but I, I knew I had twins, like months away from being born, that no one else did. So I thought, no, I'll, I'll just wait a year. Thank you very much. I probably shouldn't go and do that. Well, I've got brand new twins at home. Um, and then yeah, you know, and then ten thirteen came along, two thousand nineteen, I think. Yeah, late nineteen. Um, we started ten thirteen, um, which is a a, a, a tech startup syndicate investment platform. It's got about 82 million under management, about 650 investors. 
um, 44 businesses in that, in that uh, excuse me, 30 businesses, 44 rounds in, in, in 30 businesses. Um, so yeah, it's been quite successful. And Beaten Zone. Now, this is something of real interest to me, uh, particularly because, you know, those of us that have, you know, served in, in whatever capacity, are, are, it's something that I'm, I'm really curious in is, from a veteran's perspective, capability back into the ADF, particularly with all of, you know, the current machinations of the world and geopolitics at the moment. What's Beaten Zone's, you know, unique position? And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Look, um, so back in 2017, I was asked to um, help out at Army Innovation Day. So a chap, Ramey chap, Karen Joyce, uh, who's now Wing Commander or Group Captain. Oh, he, the, the Air Force has got him now anyway. He wears a blue yeah. uniform. He's a great bloke. Um, and he asked me, uh, I, I knew him through a bloke I served with. It was a 40th class um, Appy. Um, and he went to be commissioned. So back when back in the mid, when I left, they were getting a whole bunch of corporals and sergeants from Ramey and basically commissioned them with one pip, sent them to ADFA for uh, three years to get a degree and then bring them back in. So it, uh, I got to meet Karen through a mate who did that. Um, and um, Karen was sort of head of army drone, this weird thing called drones at the time, you know. Karen was head of army drones. It was almost like a cursed hosting, I think, to be honest. Um, he asked me to come along to Army Innovation Day in 2017 and, you know, just as a bit of PR thing, soldier made good, get patted on the head, you know, picture with the general. But yeah, I don't know. I didn't mind helping out. So I went along and, and I was amazed at what I saw. And, and I've been sort of helping out there ever since. But I've been trying to have the Army introduce more private capital into really early stage um, defence innovation. And it's been a tough road. And, and no direct fault of anyone I've been working with, but they're fucking hopeless at it. So, um, and I sort of was so, sort of working from the inside to try and do a few bits and pieces. It wasn't really working. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to change this, I need to, I need to demonstrate a better way. And, and the best way to demonstrate that, you know, as a soldier, I always think that, you know, soldiers love to complain, but I used to hate that. But I think you have to buy your right to complain. So, you know, if you're doing a good job, you can complain. If you're doing a shit job, you can't complain, right? So, but is the um, is the complaining the essence of the problem? You know, like when you've got a digger, you know, why isn't this bit of kit not working? You know, is that really starting the essence of the problem that we actually can be solving through innovation? Uh, well, we, yeah, but the complaints more. But I suppose it's more more my philosophy in how you have input. Um, mm. Inputs more value when you're actually trying to fix things as opposed to just complaining for the sake of it. But you get, a, mm. you know, it, it, you, you see too much of that. Probably, I probably saw too much of the army. We were a piece of army. We had we had we had uh, misaligned priorities, I suppose would be the best description for it. Um, so so, be, so what I, I saw lots of things there. So I thought, right, okay, I, I want to do something here and, and I wouldn't mind investing in some defence tech. I'm mostly a software investor. Defence is mostly light industrial. They have two separate domains by, by quite a large margin. Um, and I thought I want to actually also change society's opinions towards entrepreneurs who produce weapons or, or military-like things. So Beaten Zone is a very deliberate statement to say we're not scared of lethal shit. Um, we don't want to see this stuff fly for real, but if you come to us, be careful because we are backing some people who can do some really violent things to you. Yep. So um, this is about trying to change that commerce. Defense of the realm is a good thing, and so we're trying to change that. And we're trying to lionize these entrepreneurs, not demonize them. So that's what Beaten Zone. We're early stage investors in sovereign. We're, we're sovereign means headquartered here and, and domiciled here, so the, the headquartered here for one of a better term. Um, Businesses increasing capability and lethality and survivability. Well, lethality is either the weapon, holds the weapon, aims the weapon, trains the soldier to use the weapon, or turn that coin over. Survivability is protects us from their weapons. So, yeah. um, so that's what we're very keen on. We're backing Australian businesses to get into this fight. 
um, with capital and, and just finding them really good businesses out there and, and you know, giving them the, 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 the care they need to start to, to keep their fires burning. As you know, my, th- my thing really is having been, you know, moderately successful in business myself, um, the veteran business chamber and how I support veteran entrepreneurship is really important to me. But to be honest, I don't see there are some, but not many actual veterans going into that direct capability line. There's lots of veteran owned businesses that support other businesses, you know, like whether, you know, business services and we do anything and everything, but for veterans that are in particular, that, that understand capability, that understand uh, particularly, you mentioned the, the light industry piece. What would your recommendation be to sort of how they get that foot in the door of crystallizing that idea into actually an event that they could bring to you one day? Um, look, so um, I agree. So we don't have enough sovereign Australian businesses producing actual things that defence can order. Sovereign Australian businesses typically contribute to Australian industry content on behalf of an overseas prime who's making something maybe here under licence. And I think it's dreadful. We need to change that. And that's not going to happen instantly. Um, but COVID has taught us the, the limits of globalisation when it comes to supply chains, and it's not a good story. Hmm. So we, we need to... This is like a 1956 Israeli embargo moment, right? Uh, due to the Suez. Um, so... That was a wake-up call. They had to start producing their own stuff and couldn't rely on overseas suppliers. And, and the whole world said that. But we need to listen. So um, when I talk to people about starting businesses and they ask me questions about, well, you know, I've got this business idea. I said, well, you should just do it. You oh, didn't hear it. And I said, well, I'm probably not your customer. So why, do, why does my opinion count? Um, the only person who gets an opinion is your customer. Um, and in the heart, you know, the hardest thing about starting a business is starting a business. So, um, so when it comes down to direct capability like that, the reality is, is that what we like, we're prisoners to overseas primes because our I heard, I heard it described the other day that, that Australian the, the ADF has a subconscious bias about buying Australian defence equipment, uh, and it's, I said no, there's nothing subconscious about it. It's a bias, and they love it, right? So they they. They, they, for whatever, you know, no one got fired for buying Boeing or Raytheon type crap, excuse me. So, um, you know, people who in their mainline job are, are probably very serious, brave individuals, when they get in the logistics role, take very cowardly decisions commercially. So we need them, you know, supporting Australian businesses and backing them. So, but we also need businesses creating and building finished product here. So the defence needs to be able to order a board from here, they need to be able to order a missile, they need to be able to order a truck. So if they can't do that, then they'll order it for the person who sells it, which is the prime. So unless we can start making this stuff, and that's a gradual process, it's a process over years we'll get there, then, then it's gonna be hard, but we have to start by doing. Um, and, and then now I'll, 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 I'll color this by saying that I, I sometimes in the entrepreneurial space, in the entrepreneurial space feel like General Haig, I will send a thousand people over the top to get one winner. Um, that's at times the sort of probably thousands a bit disingenuous, you know, dozens scores of people over the top to get one winner. That's actually what it takes. But we need the scores going over the top. So I always encourage people. My default is start a business. Yep. Not everyone will, but my default is start a bit. It's hard, and every other day is going to be hard. But it'll be so worthwhile. It'll be incredible. So um, you know. Um, yeah, but I'm 
profligate with people's futures. I don't, I'm disappointed if, if it doesn't work out for them, but I will send more over the top. Going back to your point there about when you transitioned and, you know, running 23 different KR phone lines into your house, the, the actual preparation for the transition into business is really important. Uh, we, we did the same thing. We actually kicked the business off 12 months before the actual discharge separate date, separation date had. And we were lucky enough to actually, my business partner and I, Matt, were lucky enough to actually transition on probably more income than we ever earned in the army as we transitioned. But what we don't have, I believe, in Australia at the moment is this, is just this consciousness for veterans to go into small business, just give it a crack as a legitimate pathway. So much of the narrative is about getting a job. And there's nothing wrong with getting a job because getting a job might be your pathway to starting a business. But particularly in the States, you know, there's three forms of transition out of the military and you choose this as a pathway. You're like, right, I'm going to go get a government job. Pretty standard. Number two, I'm going to get a job somewhere else. And that's what we do. But number three, they get to actually choose their pathway into small business and entrepreneurship whilst they're in the military. And that's something that I'd really like to see is to develop these frameworks so that people can actually get set up for success, that when they walk out the door, they've actually got a plan to do this. You know, my, my, um, my separation was, was, well, there was, there was no transition back then. It was separation. Mm -hmm. Um, was a lot different. So I, um, I was due out in, in the following January. My nine years was up. Um, I took the year before that, I took the month off leave without pay in the May. My business went nuts. And I went back and saw my boss and said, um, uh, Peter Shanks was a great, great, great bloke, head of the workshop there at 16. Um, and uh, I said, like, you know, hey, sir, I'm back. I'd like to get out, please. I think I was the only one of my uh, uh, um, ECN. Um, yep. yeah, my trade, my trade category actually left on you. I think we had eight spots and I was it. And they're like, well, you know, we're the Antifans unit for Australia and you're the only guy sort of left here who can fix this stuff, basically, because we had manpower shortages. Um, I can't let you go. I said, well, I don't go get that. No, it was worth a try. And he said, but we've got kangaroo 95s coming up. And if you, you know, if you be a good boy like that, and I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm on the way back, I'll recommend early discharge. Well, the best I could hope for, that was a pretty good, um, pretty good deal. And I was, we got up to we got up to Catherine. We set up just outside of Tindall there about two days, and he's walked into the shelter with this with a signal. You know the old crappy like toilet, like wide toilet paper, shitty signal paper that comes in, right? And and on that's authorizing my discharge, basically. Um, and he said he sent the request through, and they've totally misinterpreted. Like I want to get out, so like eleven days after I get back, I'm discharged. That's <laughs> it. He shows me. He says, "Oh, you know, the bargain's still good, right? You're going to be a good boy." So yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm all good. I'll play the game. Um, but it gets funnier yet. So on that exercise, I wasn't style qualified because, and you weren't style qualified. They gave me a style. They pulled all the metal bits out of the style and just gave me the plastic hull, right? which is right, <laughs> because it was lighter. So I got to carry that around. But I wasn't allowed to shoot this thing, right? Fucking pathetic. But um, I got back and they, uh, the unit was busy doing whatever. I don't know what, because it was some of the men. I don't know how busy we were. But um, uh, they had to send like four people on a style conversion course. And I went, all right, all right, we'll send the guy getting out. So I went to the start conversion course for seven of my, seven of my last 11 days. Uh, when, uh, that's it. Just a nice, thanks for that, Army. Great use of the uh, training there on someone that uh, could have actually used it one day. That's it. Did four days in discharge and I was done. Um, so, you know, yeah. Um, and then actually, there was, was an Army, Army Innovation Day in 18 or 19 where at ADFA, like, this guy, um, Australian Targets, Paul, he's an ex um, SAS CO, Paul, someone, Paul, Paul, for his name now. 
Um, but he has a targeting company. And he bought this like 40 foot container of Adfer and it was like a rifle range in the, in, in the back. And so they actually had styes in there. So I went in there and I thought, oh, I turned around, I'm actually, I'm actually next to Chief of Army who's firing beside me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I've got a bit of a rundown. So like, like literally the last thing I did before leaving the army was, was the, firing the style for the first time. And I mean, this, and the style had, had evolved quite a bit. It wasn't the old plastic or, you know, Austrian thing we got. It was all fancy yeah. with rails and all sorts of stuff. Um, but yeah, I got to blade a few targets. That was, that was a bit of fun next to a general. So it was quite enjoyable. Uh, on your last day out, thanks for coming, Steve. Good luck with the rest of your career. Rest yeah, of, rest of- Mate, just as, um, just as, as we approach the wrap up, um, it'd be remiss of me not to just ask, get a bit of guidance off you to help people like, you must get pitched at left, right, and center. What should people do to prepare before they come and see someone like you? Well, or whether it's you or whoever. I understand what you're trying to get from the engagement. Um, so I okay, am an investor. We see in this business here, my two businesses, we'd see 300 pitches a month. I, I don't. I have a team of seven, eight people. Um, I, I see the 20 that make through that process. Um, but every investor is after, after an easy no. They can find something to say no to. Because it, 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 you know, there's some gross things you just want to invest in. Okay, is it this, this, or this? Yet yeah, don't invest in that. Just get out the door. So they're always after those easy no's. So re- reduce easy no's. But but I, I understand what you want to get from the engagement. Are you, are you optimizing for another meeting? Are you actually opt- do you think you'll get an investment for this person? Mm-hmm. Are you just wanting another meeting? Do you want to get a recommendation to see someone? So orientate your pitch towards what you what you actually want to score out of the meeting. Um, and it, it's only on crappy TV shows that someone gets an investment after eight minutes. Right, yeah. it never ever happens, right? So, um, you know, uh, so we'll put it through the gears here. We usually put it through at least two DD communities, which is probably sort of three to six weeks. Um, and then the negotiation process can take another at least three to six weeks. Uh, nothing happens that fast. Like, and, and, and we're very keen to have it go a little bit slower because we want to watch you as we go through this process. We'll ask, okay, how did last month go? Right, you said you're going to do X. Did you do X? Oh, you did, oh, you did X plus Y. That's great. Oh, you did X minus Y. Why is that? So, you know, investors, a smart investor will want to actually take a sensible amount of time to actually complete that. So don't think this is just going to happen and, and turn it up and it, it just doesn't, doesn't occur that way. And valuations, you know, runs on the board versus potential. You know, how is your bias? Is this intuitive? Or I guess, again, it's a six-week diligent process or whatever you're going through. Now, as, you know, someone coming forward, they've always got probably an overinflated idea of the valuation. How do you, what's some guidance around, you know, just some basics on how you should value? So it depends on the sort of business that you are. If, if you're a genuinely uh, uh, global potential software, high margin tech business, mm-hmm. um, then that's different to a light engineering manufacturer of trailers in Australia, for example, right? Um, hardware is well-named, it's hard. Software is a lot easier. Um, because you know that, that if a thousand people use your software or use your online interface, whatever, use your product, your software product, um, the cost to deliver that for those extra nine hundred ninety nine people is close to zero. Right? That's that's the benefit of software. The gross margin in software is freaking huge. Uh, in hardware, it's not. You've got to ship stuff. You've got to buy it. You've got to weld it. You've got to do this and crap and pay duties and taxes and all the all the all the poop along the way. So that will change the valuations between those businesses. That's very important. So understand the space you're in. Um, you, you're worth what someone's willing to pay for it. So in, the, in our software tech business, we see a lot of businesses. So we see a lot of valuations. We see a lot of deals going every month. So we get some idea what the market's paying. You know, some, some months your house worth 600,000. Some years your house worth 600,000 bucks. It might be, might be a 650, 640. So valuations change. In software, they tend to do this. <laughs> but um, 
Um, so, but but it, it's really we work in a market, and you know if someone else is willing to pay more, they'll get it. If we really want it, we'll have to pay the same or, or just as much, or, or we'll have to outline the benefits, our non-monetary benefits to that to that company. So, what else do we bring other than just cash to this equation or capital to this equation? So, understanding the type of business you've got, understanding what comparable. So, what other businesses like yours have traded for? What do they sell for? What do people pay for them? That's you're not going to get much more than that. If there's an average out there, you, and you get the average, you're probably pretty lucky. So, um, so you, you, there's a lot of investigation that has to happen. Steve, mate, I really, really appreciate your time today. Uh, I guess you know one of the biggest takeaways that I've got is, you know, aspirational stories of veterans doing great thing in their life outside of the military. Currently, there's too much narrative around, you know, what what a veteran is, and you know, all of the you know, the negative connotations around transition, but that's not the same story for everybody. And I really believe that we need to tell better stories. We need, we need to have the, you see it, you can be it kind of stories. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'd love to keep sharing your story because whenever I say, oh, that's Steve Baxter, Blake, oh, he was in the army apprentice. They're like, oh, really? And that's particularly for people, if you're serving or a veteran, you know, like this light of aspiration and what you can achieve through business is just, you know, it really inspires me. And, and, and thanks for your contribution. Um, last but not least, yeah, you're my Thai first favorite veteran entrepreneur. If you can get um, the blue wiggle, Anthony Field, on the podcast, that'd be great. Uh, veteran, is he? Anthony Field, former 5RAR infantry soldier who started a band and started the Wiggles. So that's my other. So there's got uh, Lockforce, Troy Lockyer. Um, he's got a business called Lockforce. He's an ex-SAS uh, trooper. Another guy, Wayne Jones, runs XRG, AS Exlisted. I've backed Wayne and Denny into their business. Yep. So they're um, uh, Tim Tim warms up here with Bench on. There's a, there's a bunch yeah, of yeah. Tim's uh, great. He was actually two episodes before you, so right. I got Tim. He's a good lad. Um, well, I'm sure there's more I can think about. That's for sure. Sorry, I should I should I should. Have nah, there's, there's some great businesses out there, and I'll, I'll throw them in the show notes afterwards. Um, Steve, thanks for your time. I uh, really appreciate you uh, you sharing your precious time with us. Um, and thanks for coming on the Military Mindset for Business podcast. No, she's better. Thanks, mate. This episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast has been brought to you by Trust the Process. If you're looking to systemize and automate and delegate in your business, then head over to trusttheprocess.com.au. And by the way, if you're my random listener in Benin, South Africa, um, can you please get in touch on LinkedIn? I'd love to know who you are and you know, why you're out there listening to this. So thank you for joining us on the Military Mindset for Business podcast. Uh, stay tuned for the next great uh, story. Take care, all.